0: Hello everyone, it's July 23rd, 2019, so we're thrilled to finally have an explanation as to why that dragon blew up on the test stand, and we're even more thrilled to talk to Ron Berkey about his virtual Apollo guidance computer project. So let's boot up another episode and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 220 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Dennis. And Ben's not here again. I think he's he told us that last week. He's uh, on vacation, but he will be joining us later for an upcoming interview. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we have that to look forward to. Really good stuff. Yeah. And, yeah, so I guess happy 50th Apollo anniversary. That's all over the news. I wish we were, well, we are kind of doing something special regarding that, which will be coming up later on in the show. But uh, I haven't been celebrating in any personal way, just kind of, you know, keeping up with the things going on. Mm -hmm. I know that Buzz Aldrin's making the rounds. He's been giving speeches, I think, at least one that I know of, but probably more than that. So he's sort of being uh, paraded around the country, I think.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I've I've seen some really sweet uh, photo op pictures with him and the other uh, Mm -hmm. apollo astronauts and he is dressed very uh i'll just say it's very loud (laughs) oh really but but he looks he looks it's hilarious actually what he's wearing some of the astronauts you know are wearing tuxedos but then they'll have like you know a bow tie with a little bit of like a space theme or something Mm -hmm. but um you really got to just look at his
0: uh yeah i see the one you're referring to that's a that that looks nice He look well he looks kind of like a a space-themed Hugh Hefner, to That's be honest. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> yep.
0: The photo that I'm looking at is only from the chest up, and it looks like he's wearing a silk bathrobe.
1: Oh, you need to see, because, I mean, his socks are phenomenal, every every part of it. No, I, I mean, yeah, you know, obviously with the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, you had the launch was the first kind of major milestone. And then yesterday, relative to this recording, uh, was the landing, of course. And so... Unfortunately, I was on the road during both of those. So I was driving along a highway in New Jersey during the takeoff. And I i was actually had just gotten back to Tucson uh, for the landing. But at that point, I think I was taking a nap. So like you say, I—I it would be nice to kind of do like a little, I mean, I would have liked to you know, maybe just have a few people over and barbecue or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um. That'd be fun. At least all of my, you know, I don't exclusively, of course, listen to just you know space podcasts, but obviously I have you know a few of them that I like, and uh, I've just, I guess that's how I've been celebrating because you know road trip, I've yeah, a lot of podcasts yeah. to listen to, so I've been hearing all the awesome various content that's been coming out from other uh, spaceflight folks, which you know again very heavily Apollo fifteen I want to keep saying Apollo fifty, Apollo eleven themed, <laughs> the fiftieth <50th> anniversary theme.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I guess let's uh, without further ado, let's get on with the show. So more Apollo talk. So I think we have some winners for this oh, yeah. uh, this week in spaceflight history. Do you want to just rattle off that list? <laughs>
1: yeah, we've got a crew. So we've got, and uh, again, if I missed anybody uh, that what didn't use the hashtag or uh, posted in the subreddit, then I apologize, and we'll give you you know of course the full credit next week. Uh, When we have a full roster here. But the uh, winners for this week in spaceflight history are Nick Blackwell, Ben Hallert, Stuart Allen, Oko McConan, Chris Hoffman, The One True Sheep, Chevy Tercosi, and Valentin Frank. So congratulations to that crew for getting the clue right. The clue was Lockheed, Boeing, Northrop, temco Vaught, Grumman, Douglas, General Dynamics, Republic, Martin Marietta, North American, and McDonnell. And uh, if you remember, Ben wanted to go with a uh, what he felt was a harder clue, since uh, you know, I'm not gonna say Apollo 50, since the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. You know, he could have made an obvious clue related to that kind of tongue in cheek, yeah. and he opted for this more challenging one. But I think uh, once again, when Ben makes a clue that challenges people, they our listeners step up <laughs> big time, and so they we they rise had a, to the challenge. Yeah, and uh, we do have to give extra points to Valentine for uh giving his answer in the form of a haiku. So if you will allow me Apollo contract 11 firms designing build us a lem please very nice. So <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So right so this is the 25th of July 1962 and it was when the statement of work was issued for the lem the lunar excursion mo- module later the lunar module. So the concept for the LEM first came about when, you know, NASA had settled on a lunar orbit rendezvous instead of a uh, trying to do a direct ascent like the lunar surveyors were able to do uh, uncrewed or a Earth orbit rendezvous. And so uh, 11 companies were invited to uh, submit proposals. Uh, nine of them ultimately did. There was a list of, you know almost two dozen kind of questions that, uh, NASA was interested in them having to, uh, address. And, uh, of these nine proposals, uh, Grumman won and, uh, got the contract and began, uh, the design in January of 1963. So, you know, six months later. Now, uh, their major subcontractors they worked with were, uh, Bell, who focused on the ascent engine, Rocketdyne, that, focused on the descent engine, uh, the Markhart Corporation, which focused on the reaction control system, and Hamilton Standard, which focused on environmental controls. And so the uh, chief designer, who's also kind of known as the, the father of the LEM, was uh, Thomas Joseph Kelly. And uh, he uh, was also instrumental in kind of uh, developing the lunar orbit rendezvous concept in the first place. So um, obviously he, you know, didn't do it by himself but you know as the chief designer of this very very you know complex many moving parts subcontractors you know he kind of you know is rightfully given i think that sort of uh, designation and so the uh total cost of development of just the lem was uh billion in 2016 dollars, so a nice little testament to how much money was floating around at that point.
0: Yeah, that's definitely a lot. That's a little bit more than the budget that NASA has per year, Mm -hmm. Um, at least I think it is, or it's just around there. But um, considering what was accomplished, that's actually, that's really not that bad. I mean, all things considered, I guess. Right, yeah. That's actually, because I feel like if we had to do that now, it would cost even more. That's oh. just my perception though.
1: <laughs> yeah, well if, if JWST, Hubble and uh SLS are any kind of indicator the way we've been doing business. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I feel like you could if there was the kind of will that we had, uh, you know, humanity had back mm-hmm. then, or you know, I guess the US government and the US had, you could find twenty billion dollars nowadays you know what i mean like if yeah. there really was the political will there that money can be
0: found oh yeah for sure so
1: pretty wild stuff um the uh statement of work uh like i said it had there were some questions that were part of it but you know it outlined various responsibilities uh what the mock-ups would need to include such as i thought you know just small little quirky things i think we should yeah we'll have in the show notes uh basically this uh, nice little document that goes into a lot of really deep detail The Chariots for Apollo, uh, A History of Manned Lunar Spacecraft by Courtney Brooks, James Grimwood, and Lloyd Swenson, which is a uh, a NASA document that... I mean, really, kind of just reads as a fourteen chapter book with epilogues and appendices and everything. And so, yeah, I'd like to find the time to sit down and just kind of go through all this. But just going through the lunar module, you pick up like neat little things, like for example that you know they were specified, you know, that they were going to be using hypergols for the propellants, but nitrogen tetroxide was going to be the oxidizer. But they still had options of which type of fuel they wanted to use, whether uh, what MMH or a mix of hydrazine and uh, was it a U unsm? Oh, the UDM-, di- yeah. Udm yeah, symmetric yes.
0: dimethylhydrazine
1: yeah. So they had those kind of options there. Uh, they had different things that they wanted. For example, like the lem uh, would need to be able to be piloted and able to return with uh, either crewman capable of doing it, even by themselves if if necessary. And and as far as interesting stats go, uh, and to give an idea of how important this was, the overall crew safety goal uh, that they you know had quoted for the mission was to try to you know have 0.999 Safety. And of that, 0.995 was a portion to the LEM itself. So that is by far the most dangerous part of the mission by a fairly wide margin.
0: Because you're just having to come back up through the gravity well of. Another planetary body, essentially.
1: Right. And and when you hear people talking about, you know, landing on Mars, there's details about, like, what the regolith that you're landing in is going to be like and how that might affect landing safety as well as, you know, ascending mm-hmm. back off of that. And so... Yeah, there's a lot to it there. So, yeah, I recommend checking this out, uh, especially it's really neat. You can see the um, they've got really cool images. And uh, One True Sheep uh, had tweeted this as well, uh, an image from Charities for Apollo, uh, basically showing the LEM uh, design and how it progressed from a more bubbly uh, five-legged uh, lander to the uh, current one with the very angular features that we see today. So, yeah, so that was uh, this week. uh, The statement of work was issued. And they
0: got the work done. (laughs) They got the work,
1: yeah, right? They got the work done. It took a few years. They settled into the final configuration, and then, yeah, everything came together.
0: Yeah. All right. Cool little bit of Apollo history there. And what is our clue for next week?
1: Well, next week in 2008, five plus four equals 832,000.
0: Five plus four equals 832,000 thousand uh neither of us check the math on that but it, i think it checks out so mm-hmm. that is we, your we are clue. sharing
1: responsibility for this yeah uh, algebra
0: sounds right to me all right well if you think you know what that is in reference to give us a tweet with the hashtag this week sf and good luck
1: good luck everybody.
0: So, Crew Dragon, we have a conclusion about what caused that explosion a couple months back. And I'm excited about this because I was, you know, wondering if it might be a lot longer or if maybe they would never say. But SpaceX is pretty transparent. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so it turns out that it was a problem with a leaky valve, which I guess you could have almost concluded that no matter what the exact cause was. Because when you see a giant explosion, something ignited where it shouldn't have been
1: right i'm very excited about this i figured they would have released the information eventually i just you know i trusted that they would but um what happened actually (laughs) what that leaky valve uh, ended up doing and resulting in that is a lot more interesting than i thought it would turn out to be yeah,
0: and you know, I don't know a lot about check valves because that's kind of what is at the heart of this problem. So I guess we should just go over exactly what happened. So you have the fuel and the oxidizer tank for the Super Dracos, and those are pressurized with a very high-pressure helium pressurization system, mm-hmm. and you have a check valve that pretty much allows the helium to go from the helium tank and then to the oxidizer tank to pressurize it, mm-hmm. but not in the other direction, and that's what a check valve is for. Right. You don't want- want oxidizer
1: in your helium tank.
0: Right. And so what happened was there was some sort of an issue with the check valve, or maybe just you know, I mean, they actually do leak pretty often. That's kind of a common thing, actually. Mm -hmm. So um, during the fueling of the Dragon, I believe that that's when this happened, a little bit of the oxidizer, which is nitrogen tetroxide, leaked back through that check valve in the wrong direction and, you know, got into the helium pressurization system. Mm -hmm. And then when they went to conduct their static fire test, they went to pressurize the tanks. And then the high- pressure helium pushed that small amount, which I heard was about a cup. So like, you know, kind of like if you had like a little coffee cup about that much NTO, um, Mm -hmm. don't drink it. And that got (laughs) pushed at very high pressure, very high speed, and it slammed into the titanium check valve, shattering it, and then subsequently igniting, I guess, a fraction of a second later. Mm -hmm. And that's how it all happened. So... Yeah, I I kind of like envisioning
1: a liquid bullet just slamming into this valve from... The wrong direction, essentially.
0: I'm not sure of the exact velocity, but it hit with a lot of speed. I think it was traveling about as fast as a bullet does. Mm. Like, if you're going to shatter a titanium... Check valve. I don't know how much force is required, but it's got to be a lot, right? (laughs) Yeah, this wasn't. Yeah, it's made of titanium, and liquid just shattered it, and I guess at the same time ignited. I'm not sure if the ignition, and this is where I don't know enough about this, like, is the ignition because the valve shattered, which actually exposes more surface area, or is it just from the slamming into the valve?
1: So I, like that, that, when I was reading the news articles on this, that was the most unclear part. Basically, in my head, I just had, okay, the the slug of NTO hits the check valve, shatters it, all hell breaks loose, and there's ignition. But Chris Hoffman posted in our Discord, I don't know if you saw this, apparently, it sounds like the titanium
0: itself ignited with the NTO. It did definitely ignite but i'm just wondering if that would have happened had it not shattered.
1: Okay, well that's that's a good question. I don't know. But that's that like they they've been reporting that that was uh, unexpected, but mm-hmm. he's got this quote from a looks like it's from a document from the 60s talking about how when titanium alloys are introduced to nitrogen tetroxide or red fuming nitric acid, that violent pyrophoric reactions may occur within the titanium alloys. So, and I guess this would be good with Ben, who's feel much more engineering minded (laughs) than either of us or certainly me. But uh, if the check valve is titanium on both sides, then wouldn't the side kind of facing the nitrogen tetroxide be exposed to it? At some point,
0: yeah, but you would have to have very high pressures in order to cause any kind of ignition. So it's mm-hmm. not something that just you know like reacts with it. And I think that that's fairly well characterized, and no one's worried about that. The problem is that it slammed into the valve at very high speed.
1: Right. So that's why I mean I could imagine based on what I you know had read that the shattering probably didn't help, but um the fact that it slammed into the nitrogen or into the titanium at such high velocity, was able to kind of trigger these reactions and cause the ignition.
0: Yeah, because I think it's essentially, you have to get to a certain temperature and pressure. And obviously, if you increase the pressure, you also increase the temperature. So I think that that's basically what happened.
1: So yeah, so I guess, you know, the shattering, it likely did help. Sam's pointing out in the chat that the titanium tends to form a passive oxide layer like aluminum does. So the shattering might expose the titanium directly and then cause these rapid reactions and then boom
0: that's a good point. You don't have the oxidized layer once you shatter the check valve because you have, you know, the internal parts of the valve that are now exposed. And obviously those can become oxidized by the oxidizer because that's what it does. And so that makes ignition much more easy. Mm -hmm. So had the valve not shattered, I think that maybe this would not have happened because yeah, as far as I know, you can expose titanium to both this oxidizer, the nitrogen tetroxide, as well as the fuel, which is a monomethyl hydrazine, and you shouldn't have any problems. It's just, at least with the oxidizer, it's just like if you have sufficiently high pressures and you already don't have any oxidation on, you know, the surface of the titanium, then that's probably what triggered it. But anyway, yeah, so that's what happened. Uh, And the solution to this is to use burst disks, which, uh, you know, are basically just these little barriers that once there's enough pressure will actually break open and then allow the helium to pressurize the oxidizer tank mm-hmm. and so that's the solution which I had read that SpaceX was not happy about this and didn't use this in the first place because they they want a fully reusable spacecraft and obviously these would have to be reinstalled every time they're used but the thing is they're not going to be used per mission unless there's some kind of an abort because that's the only case where you'll be using the Super Dracos. Now, I do understand that their first idea was to use the Super Dracos for propulsive landing, but now that that's off the table, as far as I know, they are only going to be used during an emergency in which case, that by definition is a very off nominal Mm -hmm. situation where Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if something's reusable or not, you just need to get the crew back safely. So I don't see what the big conflict of interest is there. And I think that they should just go ahead and stick with the burst disks. That exactly. seems like a much better idea.
1: I agree 100% with everything you just said.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think that yeah, this is a better solution since they aren't going to be doing propulsive landing until I guess they get the the starship up and going because that's where they're going to be landing, landing. Right.
1: Yeah, I, I can't wait to see DM2 you know fly. So that's why uh, at least now they've got an idea and it's not something... Well, I guess it is But yeah, no, it's not something kind of integral to the Super Draco design. It's just literally changed one type of valve to another one.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure what the conclusion is as far as when they're going to be back testing. I had read November, so maybe by November they'll be doing DM2, but I'm not sure that might have already slipped or might eventually slip anyway, but Mm -hmm. hopefully that's when we'll see it fly again. It's another two short and sweet days since there's just two of us. So what's our first one?
1: First up, NASA approves a three-year renewal of eight key space observatories. After their senior review of current space-based astrophysics science missions this year, NASA has recommended that all of them continue operations for the next three-year period. These eight missions include two telescopes that operate in gamma rays, Fermi and Swift, four in X-rays, Chandra, XMM-Newton, NICER, and NUSTAR, and two in the optical, TESS and Hubble key judgment was the complementary nature of many of the observatories, which often take data simultaneously.
0: Next up, Starhopper does a static fire. The static fire test of a single Raptor engine this past Tuesday was carried out at SpaceX's test facility in Boca Chica, and after the thrust vector control and pre-burner tests, which I didn't know they did first, by the way, but they did, <laughs> the static fire was carried out for its full five-second burn. Many observers of the test witnessed a large fireball that seemed to engulf the Starhopper for a few seconds. However, the vehicle's Sustained only cosmetic damages as this was merely the result of a small amount of excess methane discharging and igniting so that was not an explosion that was just a fireball that was a or burn? okay yeah yeah you know what it was probably due to a faulty check valve by the way because <laughs> that that's happened <laughs> in the damn past check
2: all right and welcome to the interview segment today we have with us ron burkey um one of the biggest Apollo nerds I know, and I'm so excited to talk to him. Welcome, Ron.
3: Oh, hi. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Um, so so you have a, a, a sort of a bit of a claim to fame uh, with uh, how far your Apollo nerdery extends. You wrote the virtual AGC. Uh, why don't you go ahead and explain to us exactly what this is? Because it's, um, I think, something that a lot of people would have thought would be interesting but probably don't realize is actually a thing in the real world. Well,
3: okay. Um, you know, I just sort of distinguish between the virtual AGC project and the virtual AGC software. I assume that that's really what you're talking about is the, the software. You know, the idea behind it is that the Apollo missions originally had computers on board the spacecraft and that if it were possible to get a hold of the original software that ran on those computers, and if you had a computer simulation of the computers themselves that, say, ran on a PC, then you could run the original Apollo software on the computer simulation on your PC. So, in other words, you'd just basically be running the same software that was in the Apollo capsules but you would be doing it, you know, sort of accurately and and realistically. And that's what virtual ADC is. It's just the the software that that does that.
2: And, and so, how how deep does this virtualization go? Are, are we running the code, or are we running code that's running code? If, if that makes sense.
3: <laughs> well, actually, I'm not quite sure what you're getting at. But the point is that if you had, and and you can get it off of my website, if you had a listing of the original Apollo program it's it's the instructions you see that are on that program that's being run by the being run by the virtual machine you know if you change the software to do something else if it were possible to flash up the word hello then you would be able to do that on the the virtual machine as well
2: so are you uh, are you simulating like the rope core memory or is it modernized to just run in the memory of your
3: computer oh well the idea behind my software is simply that it it models the uh, documented behavior of the individual instructions because it's a uh, the original computer ran its own sort of custom assembly language it programmers know what that means i'm sure nobody else does but it gets down to the you know the sort of the fundamental instructions that are you know the the computer understood. Although the AGC itself—that's what the computer that was in the capsule was called—is the Apollo Guidance Computer, the AGC. Actually, all of its instructions, all of its assembly language, actually were defined in a sort of microcode. And I don't try to simulate. Down to the,
0: the microcode. I'm just trying to get a idea of how exactly the software is run. So it's running in a virtual AGC, and obviously that has to be emulated in some way. So like if you try to execute some kind of command, you would be constrained by the hardware of that time through the virtual computer. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah. Some of the some of the sort of peripheral hardware is simulated too. The way the astronauts interface to the computer was through a device called the disky, the display mm-hmm. keyboard. And so there are actually several different simulated diskies that you could run as part of the project. And it's all open source, so what happens is that people can take the CPU simulation and they can, you know, put it in, like, real spacecraft simulators if they wanted to do that. And the primary example of that is there's a a spacecraft simulation program called Orbiter, and there's an add-on for that called NASP, N-A-S-S-P, which is specialized just towards the Apollo missions. And NASP has you know virtual AGC built into it. So when you when you fly a simulated Apollo mission using Orbiter with NASP, you get you're running the original software. But it's a much but it you know it NASP goes to to great lengths to simulate the, all of the hardware. I mean you have it looks like you're inside the spacecraft and there's a control panel and you're looking out the window through you know and you see simulated space and Earth and Moon and etc. It's particularly cool if I'm sure if you're actually capable of flying the simulation, which I'm not, but I've, I've mm-hmm. definitely seen, uh, you know, videos that have been created from it, and it's it's pretty impressive.
2: So th- this is just such like a, a huge project. Um, I'm, I'm a little mind boggled at like where we should start here. So I, I guess a, a, a good place to, to kind of go back to basics is to talk about uh, your interest in Apollo and why the heck you decided that you would invest so much time into reviving this code in in sort of a modern age
3: you know that answer is probably going to disappoint you because i'm i'm not quite the apollo nerd that the introduction uh you know, implied <laughs> that i was the truth is that um i've been working for uh, a few decades now in creating embedded software usually for uh, airborne applications but not entirely and um I became interested in open source software because I kind of I like the idea that if I wrote some software, I I supplied it under the appropriate license, I could you know keep using it, and I wouldn't have to worry that you know somebody who owned me, you know, like my company, would say, well, you can't run that because you wrote it on our time or you wrote it while we're paying you or whatever. So, mm-hmm. so I, I wrote a series of open source software projects that I thought people would find would be really cool, and well, they never did. And uh, I happened to be watching the movie Apollo 13 one day, and I thought, <laughs> well, it would be it would be neat because uh, I saw the Apollo Guides computer, which I'd never heard of before, frankly. And I saw it, you know, there being used in this movie. And I, well, wouldn't it be great if you know, there was a way that people could go and actually use that computer now? I mean, they can't go and get in a spacecraft and go anywhere, most of them, but you know, they could sort of simulate to sort of you know some of the environment of what was going on back then. I didn't know that. Real spacecraft soft simulation software existed, and I thought, well, I can do this as an open source project if I can find the software and the original software, and if I could find the descriptions of how the CPU operated, I can, I can create that as open source software. And this is something people really, really will find cool. And so I wrote it up, and I let you know the various, uh, you know, sort of went out to the various websites where I knew that open source programmers would see notifications of new software, etc., and I. I tried to make it known, look, look at what this is, look at how great this is, and nobody was <laughs> nobody was interested. Uh, but, but from that point, that's the point at which it began to become extended, become a very large project, because I wasn't willing to sort of give up at that point. I thought, well, when I talk about having the original software, you know, every mission had different software, and the lunar module had different software than the command module did, even though they had the same computer in them. So just having... You know, a version of the software wasn't enough. I wanted the versions of software for every mission, so somebody could go through and say, "Well, look, this is the kind of mistakes they made. These, these, are the bugs they encountered. These are the feature improvements they decided to make." And look at the progress. Look at how it how it iterated from one step to the next. And so that began sort of a quest to find this stuff, which is a very slow and frustrating process sometimes. Not very fast and amazing. Process at others, but that's how it became so big, really, because once you had the software, you needed well, you needed documentation to show how you know what what you did with it and, and how it, how it worked. And then other people would contact me and say, "Well, hey, uh, you know, you got all this stuff for the Apollo guidance computer. You know, there were other computers in the spacecraft. What about the abort guidance system? Well, look, here's the software for that." And uh, other people would say, "Well, what about the comp- guidance computer that was in?" the rocket itself, because the AGC didn't control the Saturn rocket. That was a different computer. What about that computer? And so forth. And then other people say, wait a second, okay, you got all this software, but you know, I I really want to know about the hardware of the thing. Where's all the schematics? Where's all the, et cetera. And, you know, at every stage, then there's a new thing that you need to somehow go out and acquire to flesh out the description of what these computer systems are doing. So that's how it became so big. I never really set out to do that. It was just, it was, it seemed logical at every point that okay, well you've got this, you ought to have that too, and uh, that's how it worked out.
2: That's actually ex- honestly like that's really cool. Like uh, that's an unexpected path to put together something this. I don't know. It's 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 huge. Like you said, it it really is a big project.
3: It is. I mean, you could you know, if someone who is really enthusiastic about it could sign on there today, and well, they don't sign on. I mean, if there's <laughs> it's open. You you don't have to log in with a password or anything. But somebody could go to the website today and start looking at stuff, and they could just spend the rest of their life just looking at that, and they never they never absorb it all.
2: There's too much. Um. So so you mentioned getting your hands on the software. W- what did that look like? How like, how how did you even begin working on? I mean, you know, it's like the problem of eating an elephant one bite at a time. Like, how how did you get started on
3: this elephant? Uh, you mean and dealing with the software or finding the software?
2: I, I guess both, but I, I guess first just finding it, um, and then and then beginning to
3: deal with it. The beginning of the project was turned out to be really easy. What happened is, as I said, I sort of got the idea while watching Apollo thirteen, and that was some evening. Mm-hmm. 2003. So this, my project has been going on now for 16 years, longer than the Apollo program, longer than the Mercury (laughs) plus Gemini plus Apollo program. So I saw this movie and I thought, well, you know, what if I could find this stuff? So at that, after the movie was over, I started Googling it and, uh, see what, what if anything was available? And at that time, there was a website, an MIT website called history of recent science and technology. And, um, that concentrated really just on Apollo and just on the AGC, and they had collected just enough information. I mean, it's literally just exactly enough information that if you supplied just enough reverse engineering, you could do what I was had set out to do. They had a a, bunch, a sub a tiny, tiny, tiny subset of the available documents, and they were. You could hardly read them. they were they had been processed to the point where they're full of errors and et cetera, but you could read them just barely. and and they had they had actually two different software versions. Again, processed to the point we could barely read them. But they had the uh, command module software for Apollo 9, and they had the lunar module software for Apollo 13 which is pretty ironic because Apollo 13's lunar module never landed on the moon. But uh, they had those things and that was just enough. And so the next day I started out, I mean, I couldn't grasp any of it. I mean, I carried those things around with me, the program listings everywhere. I'd go to a sandwich shop for lunch and I'd pull out this massive printout that I had made of these program listings, trying to figure out what the heck they were talking about. You know, and it took I don't know how long it took anymore. It's been a long time, but it took six months or a year or something. And at that point, I had, uh, you know, I had transcribed the software into a machine-readable form because you, you know, you start out with just like PDF scans of things. They're pictures of software. They're not software. So I transcribed them into a, you know, to text form. They were machine-readable, and I had written an assembler which could take, you know, take those source files and assemble it down to the you know, to the executable binary form, and I had a simulator for both the computer, the AGC, and the disky that could, to a certain extent, run it. I mean, it was full of bugs, but it it's taken a long time. I mean, some bugs are so subtle that you you never thought there was a bug. You thought the thing was working perfectly, and some of them have only been worked out in the last few years. But uh, it was working well enough. So as I said, it took a year or so. And at that point, I started thinking, how can I get more? Oh, and you ask, so then how do you find the software beyond that? I reasoned that probably I wasn't going to find any official sources that were going to give it to me. I mean, for example, if you go to Draper Labs, which the, the, the computer and the software were designed by the MIT Instrumentation Laboratory and manufactured by Raytheon. And the the successor to the instrumentation labs is Draper Laboratories. So you go to Draper Laboratories and you ask for this stuff. And, well, they have an archive, but they not only won't give you anything from the archive, they want to tell you what's in the archive. Do you have this such and such? Well, we can't tell you, so uh, go away. Uh, but anyway, so I reasoned that the way to get this stuff was to find the original developers of the software and see if any of them had kept souvenirs. So that's the course I set out on, and that's where most of the material that I have came from. Some of it came from museums that were kind enough to either uh, to let us in, to let us have access. Some of it is from private individuals who weren't AGC developers, who just had by hook or crook uh gotten hold of one of these things, and then had enough social responsibility to say, Well, hey, let's see if we can preserve
0: it. So when you get a hold of the software, in what form does that come? because I'm because you had just said that you had to sort of like do it by hand, like you had to because there was no actual code on like a disk or something. You know what I mean? Like you had to
3: right. Well, of course, that would have been the dream. You'll find a big yeah. tape that's full of all this stuff, but then a tape, you know a, a recorder or a player that would read it would cost you know, a million dollars and, you know, would have to be restored first anyway. So we never did find any on tape or on punch cards. Uh, what, we, what we'd have is that, you know, once, back in the day, uh, once they had the software, it would start out on punch cards and they would read it into a computer and they would store it all on a tape library. So after that point, they didn't need the punch cards. But whenever the software needed to be assembled, you know, to create the to create the ropes or to do digital simulations or whatever, they would assemble it and they would print out a big printout an assembly listing, which listed line by line listed what all the source code was and listed what it assembled down to. You know which you know which bytes. I shouldn't call them hmm. bytes. They were the the computer used 15 bit words, not 16 bit, 15 bit words. And so, but since if I talk about words, it's confusing. So I'll talk about it binary. And so what you get is you get one of these printouts of, these, uh, of this assembly listing, and it'll be, the size of them differs, because as the program went on, the programs got, I mean, the Apollo program went on, the, the software programs got longer and longer. But typically a printout will be around 1,850 pages, of which 1,550 is the actual printout of the, the individual lines of code. So that's what the form will be, and then we'll have to take it and go and get it scanned because nobody give, will give us one of these printouts for more than the length of time it takes to scan it because they're they're mm-hmm. precious souvenirs to people and you know ha- actually have a value on the open market if if you go to an auction site so uh, but you know we've had we haven't got a full you know complete collection that way, but we've we've gotten You know, a nice selection of software versions. And so it's, you know, it's worked out, but it's a very data driven process. You can't, you just have to wait until somebody raises their hand and says, hey, I got something for you.
0: So you have to scan these printouts, and then what happens? Like, how do you? Well, I mean,
3: you have the PDF, and you'll, you'll, the way the scans work, the way the assembly listing works is that, as I say, it, it just is a, it's a printout of all the original individual lines of code. And then stuck to it, there will be, okay, well, this, This is what the line number was. This is what the address in memory is. This is what the binary that assembles to, et cetera. And so you just have to have someone just, you know, factor, you know, look at it. Say, factor out all the stuff that the assembler added. Says, well, look, this is where the actual line of code starts on the page. This is where it ends. And I just have someone just sit there and type it in into a text editor. And that's, it's actually a little easier than it sounds like because there's a lot of, uh, the, the software version only changed slowly from mission. To mission. And there's a lot of there's a lot of code that's reused between the command module and the lunar module software. So once I got past the original hurdle myself of typing in the whole darn thing from scratch, additional versions are easier because you just find the version you've already transcribed, which is close to the one that you're now trying to transcribe, and you just start with it. And you just make changes to it. And it's also helpful that over time, you know, after a, a few years, that, you know, people sort of caught on and said, well, we'll help. We'll come in and we'll we'll do some of the transcribing or all of the transcribing for you. And that was a big help, particularly at times when we had two or three or more programs in the hopper waiting to be transcribed. Because, it, you know, it takes months if you do it from scratch. So it's I never would have... I would have died first, probably <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
1: so so is the a g c that that we see when we interact with it on your website say is that a mission specific one or is it kind of a hybrid one that takes what you've learned from the different printouts from the different missions?
3: No, everything is intended to be exactly accurate, so you you get a you get an instruction by instruction you know it's executing the original code for whatever mission that you've chosen to do. There's some, uh, there's some additional code on my site, AGC code that has been you know, written in modern times. I wrote a, a suite of code for validating that, that the CPU simulation was working properly. And uh, other people have come in and, and written a little code too. But if you, know, if you go out to the site and you say, okay, I want to get the Apollo 11 lunar module software and, and run it, that's what you get.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm actually right now, I'm looking at the uh, the scans that you have. And yeah, actually, uh, like like there's no way you could run OCR software on this. Like this is... No,
3: I mean, first place, the, the printers weren't very good back in the day anyway. So the characters might not even be all, you know, lined up perfectly vertically. And the, the char- and then characters are light and dark and there's parts of them missing. And then, of course, they've been sitting around the shelf for 50 years anyway. And are, half of them are on green and white barred fanfold paper and the other half are on mm. on white paper with black horizontal lines across it and the lines may be cutting right through the text and etc so no everyone suggests that first and like okay here I'm gonna help you stop being so stupid use OCR no. yeah.
2: <laughs> right right so um for for somebody who's not actually sitting and looking at, at one of these printouts, you know, I think a lot of people are familiar with what modern-day code looks like and how it's relatively human-readable, even if there are some things that are a little uh, opaque to people who aren't familiar with reading code. What do these printouts look like, and how is the code represented?
3: Well, the code actually looks sort of fairly normal for what's called assembly language. It's just that these days, very few programmers ever have to look at assembly language. They don't even know what assembly language looks like. But what assembly language looks like is, is basically each line has sort of got four parts to it. Or some of the parts are optional. But there's there's a word that gives a name to the line. And half the time, those aren't there. And then there's next to that, there's an instruction. It's the name of instruction. The CPU only has a certain number Of instructions it can execute. Like in the, I happen to be looking at a list of what the AGC does right now, so there's a, it's in front of me, so there's an instruction called add, which is AD, and there's an instruction called increment, which is INCR, etc. And then the third thing on the line is is the name of whatever that instruction is supposed to operate on. Usually that's a a location in memory or something like that and then finally at the end of the line there's an optional comment that tries to describe what the heck that cryptic instruction is doing for you and so that's just it you've got this series of lines that that have several of these four four different fields i just described on and then you just, and then there's 10,000 of them or however many lines the program has so it's it's pretty opaque and hard to read the uh, assembly language is typically regarded as very tough to maintain because programmers look at it, they can't quite figure out what it what it does. Usually, there are restrictions like the names of things, the names of variables, the names of blocks of code it may be limited to just like six or seven characters or something. So you can't give a you can't give a very uh, human readable description of what a variable is. The description might be called A B X C one or something because you. You, you just can't fit a description in that size, so it tends to be tough to deal with but most assembly languages are like that even to this day so it, it looks kind of like normal assembly language it's it's different uh, in the sense that the machine itself was the assembly language looks more or less like assembly language but the actual instruction set is a bit is a bit quirky it's not as it's not as regular and uh, has such common instructions as as people today might be used to because they had to invent the computer itself it's not just something that came off the shelf it was something that they had invented and the self the hardware it's the computer itself had changed over time so the instructions that it executed weren't the same in 1967 as they were in 1963 it was a, it's a slightly different computer
1: i've seen i've seen it referenced elsewhere like sometimes when people would talk like those errors that they got on the 11 landing, mm-hmm. I remember seeing a video that explained kind of what were the lines of code that were specifically yeah responsible for that.
2: Every time I see assembly language, I think about, um, uh, there's this game called TIS 100, which is a video game where you solve puzzles in an assembly language. Um, actually watching youtubers play that is the only reason that i understand the basics i mean i'm talking very very basics of how assembly language even works you know going going down to actually interacting with the metal of the computer put this here put that there
3: i haven't even told you the trickiest part oh okay Oh boy! The, well, you didn't. You did. You had. You didn't ask. You didn't have any way to know to ask. But the uh, the software listing isn't just assembly language. What happened is is that over time there was a lot of feature creep in terms of the, the requirements they were given for this software, and so what happened is the the software just kept growing and it would it would go past the amount of memory that they had, and so they'd have to go in continually, it seems like, and pare down the program to to make it fit. And one thing they did at one point was they said, well, uh, one thing that's that's making this code bigger than it needs to be is we're doing all these subroutine calls. You know, call, call the routine to do ads, call the, uh, to add multi-precision numbers, call the routine to do multiply multi-precision numbers, call the routine to do a matrix multiply. So they invented an entirely new language, uh, which they called an interpretive language. And what the interpreter language would do is it would have... a Instead of these assembly language instructions, it would, have, it would have like higher level instructions in it that would do things like, oh, we'll take these two vectors and multiply them, you know, make a dot product of them, or and et cetera. And it had like, I don't remember exactly how many, but, you know, 50 or 60 sort of high level instructions that were not load a memory location with this value and store this value to a memory location. It was go out and do these fancy operations. And so when you're reading the actual code, you'll be reading assembly language, assembly language, assembly language, and then all of a sudden, bam, there will be two pages of interpretive instructions. And then, bam, it'll be back in assembly language again. And so uh, you have to understand both languages, really, to un- understand what the program is doing.
2: So that's that's where Yule came in, right, is is where they're going from the interpretive down to
3: assembly. Yeah, that's that's the assembler. And it was the original assembler. The story, as I remembered. It, it, was supposed to originally be delivered or ready or something in December of, by Christmas of like 1959 or something. That tells you how long they've been working on it. It wasn't even an Apollo program, and they were working on it. And uh, so they called it Yule for Tide, But uh, eventually that was replaced by a fancier assembler, which they gave the unimaginative name, the General Assembler Program, GAP.
2: And oh, uh you were the one who pointed us at um Hugh Blair Smith who actually worked on Yule and uh so I want to say thank you because that was a very interesting discussion to have.
3: <laughs> well, he's a he's a goofy guy, so I'm sure it was a, <laughs> I'm sure it was a very interesting discussion. He's but he's awesome. been very helpful. He's been very very helpful to uh to my project. Unfortunately, he was one of the ones who hadn't retained any of the printouts of the code, but he had retained a printout of all the source code for Yule, which he wrote. And uh, unfortunately, the very day I learned about that, he had given it off to somebody else. He had given it to a guy at NASA and that very day. And I was present. I was present when he handed it to him. And so unfortunately, the guy at NASA never scanned it, and made it available online. The way he he was we sort of thought he was going to. So uh, years and years later, whatever 10, 12 years later, I asked Hugh, can we get it back from this guy? And Hugh went and went to Batford and managed to get the printout back. So now we have the complete source code for Yule on on, on my site. And there's actually one of my colleagues that's been he's been doing something interesting with that. Is Yule is of course not a program that runs on the AGC. It runs on uh, a different computer. I, I can't remember which computer, like some Honeywell computer maybe, or an, an IBM computer. I can't remember. But the point is that those computers don't exist anymore. At least we don't have any access to them. So this colleague, Jim Lawton, I, I don't actually know how much progress he's made on, but he's trying to get a simulation of one of those computers going so we can run the original Yule source code, the real original Yule program on it, and then actually do assemblies of the AGC code using the original Yule. And uh, of course, we always think of doing a lot of these things, and they're hard, so you never really know whether they're going to come to fruition, but it's it's a fun thought, I think. So
2: so I, I was going to ask you if, if learning about Yule helped you understand how to interpret the AGC computer code, but I guess that's not the case because you didn't get it until much later.
3: That's true. Uh, There were a few little points that the way the assembly code worked, there was one point in particular that I just couldn't understand. It wasn't, when you have assembly code, it's not all just instructions that the CPU runs. There are also things called pseudo operations or pseudo ops, which do things that the assembler understands. For example, there's a pseudo op that you give it a decimal number and it, it stores that number at a place in memory. And if you don't know what that pseudo-op calls or what its syntax is, it's you, 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 the assembler has to know how to do that, so you have to know how to do that. But there was one particular pseudo-op that I just couldn't grasp what it was doing. And uh, so I, I put in something that worked well enough, but it wasn't right. And so eventually, when we did get the Yule code, Jim and other people you know dug through it enough to figure out with this one pseudo-op that I couldn't figure out all those years, and go in and modify our assembler to make it work properly, so it did help us, but it was uh, it was a bit uh, a bit late, really, to help out a lot. I think the one of the the coolest things about it is it's all written in Hugh Blair Smith speak, which is full of <laughs> oblique references to things that you have to be a classical scholar to know what they are, and so forth, and. So that's it's pretty fun reading it, even if you don't grasp what the heck it's getting at.
2: So how well commented is this code? Because like modern code, we have all of the storage space in the world. Um, And sometimes when you open up a project on GitHub, um, if the developer's been very kind, you know, the code will be half comment. So so how many, I guess, uh, road signs did you have along the way to figure out what all this does?
3: My personal impression of the code and the development process for it is that I don't think they really had any standards for how the code was formatted or the kinds of meta information uh, or comments that were supposed to go into it. So largely what they would do, it seems to me, is they would have, they had lots of, first place, they had lots of developers working on it. Supposedly, there were a couple of hundred developers who worked on this code. Although I only know the names of seventy or seventy-five of them, but it's my impression that each one of them just came in with whatever background they had and whatever they had lo- that learned that you know, whatever system they had they learned that worked well for you know documenting or formatting their code, and they just applied whatever they whatever they had learned. And nobody stepped in with a code review or something to say, "Okay, well, this is not the way it's supposed to be." So, for example, I would expect. You know, in the way that you said, I would expect, given a chunk of code that's sort of independent of the other chunks of code, like a subroutine or something, uh, or a section, of a named section of the code, I would expect to see at the top, you know, an explanation of what the name of the code was, uh, a description of what it was supposed to do, and a modification history of, okay, so-and-so made such and such a change on this date, he did it for this reason. And then I would go through and I would expect to sign see, as you said, um, you know, plenty of comments, to, I would hope to see plenty of comments that described what the thing did. And some blocks of code are like that, and others aren't. Some You might just find page after page of code that just, just code. There's no description, whatever, of what it's trying to do. Half or more of the subroutines, there might be a name that's written at the top, that you know, the the name of the program, but there's no explanation of who wrote it, or when they wrote it, or why they wrote it, or how they changed it afterwards. So that's that's been kind of a puzzle for me because sort of one supplementary task I took on was to try to sort of do homage to the original developers and say, okay, well, this person is responsible for this, and this person is responsible for that, et cetera. And, but you can't even get a full list of, of names, let alone of responsibilities. But if you go through and pick through the code, I mean, you go through and look at every page, you find as I said, something like 70-plus different programmers listed. And we're talking about, in today's terms, we're talking about a program that's only 75K once it's assembled, uh, <laughs> 75K bytes, 36K, I think, 15-bit words. And so you're talking about each one of these people, on the average, has got a responsibility for 1,000 bytes. And there's, and there's probably plenty of people who weren't named, so you know, maybe each one of them, on the average, is is, is responsible for, for 500 bytes. Who Who knows? It's amazing the the amount of manpower that goes into something like that.
2: And and you know this is like at the very beginning of of software, like as a as a phenomenon. Right. I'm not I'm not wrong in saying that, right?
3: Well, you know, maybe in a modern sense, there was certainly software before that, but uh, but there were. It's definitely true in the sense that there were a lot of tools that a modern programmer would take, or even. Even a less modern programmer, such as myself, would take for granted. You know, normally what you find these days, and and for a long time, for the last few decades, is is when you write a program, you write in sort of a modular fashion. It consists of a series of little subroutines or whatever, but they don't, when you assemble them or compile them, they don't have any fixed address. Uh, what happens is another program that comes in later. It's called a linker, and it combines all those things and finds, you know, places in memory for all the stuff to go. So you don't have to worry that a variable called x is stored at address one, two, three, four, five. The linker will find an address for you and it will automatically plug it back into the code. you don't have to think about it as a program. it's all very easy. they didn't have a linker. The program is just you know it's just a basically. it's just one big sequence of lines. And if they wanted stuff to be at a different location, they have to go in manually and put in the you know put in the string say, well, okay, I don't want x to be a one, two, three, four five. I want x to be a one, two, three, four, six. But on the other hand, there are some contemporary programs that they don't really have that kind of problem. I think part of the problem with the AGC is so much of it was homegrown. I mean, the computer was homegrown, the tools were all homegrown, everything was homegrown. It wasn't commercial, so they couldn't really they didn't really have manpower to support everything that maybe some of their contemporaries were were doing.
2: That's an interesting uh, that's an interesting thought. So, do do you think that you have so like kind of jumping back a little bit? We talked a little bit about how there's not a lot of consistency in the code. Do you think that there might be additional documents? Like, you know, maybe the the original the original documents had a lot of handwritten notes that ended up not, you know, getting included, uh, you know, version notes and things like that. Or or do you think that your collection is, is fairly representative?
3: There's certainly plenty of gaps in everything we have, the software and the documentation and the engineering drawings and everything. But my impression is that what they must have done is it must have been a very mentory kind of system, by which I mean that you bring in somebody to do the work and you don't dump the exact descriptions of the syntax of the assembly language and everything on them. You work with them. And if they got questions, somebody who knows about it comes and works with you until you until you understand it. So if the language has quirks and the assembler has quirks and there's things you're supposed to work around and not do there's nothing that's written down that says that, that somebody told you that. In fact, in a lot of places, you can see that it's clear that the programmers, they knew not to work, you know, necessarily from the documented behavior of what the instruction was supposed to do. They knew they had to go and look at the control, the the microcode that I mentioned earlier, the underlying code that, in which the, the hardware had under, understood the instruction. They knew that they had to look at that to understand what the instruction was doing. That's not something definitely that any modern programmer would do, except in sort of the very rarest cases.
2: And so, I guess with all that in mind, if you were to get zapped back into the past uh, and you became a developer on the original code, uh, like how do you what what do you think your impressions would be of, of working in that style? Do you think that you would really want to push for more modern sensibility if, if that was possible, or? Or do you think it'd be interesting to to see how they did this?
3: You mean going back with what I know now?
2: Yeah, yeah, with what you know now.
3: You know, I think in spite of the way I've perhaps been describing this, I think that the, their main problem really was the problem of feature creep, that they didn't understand in advance. Nobody understood what the program was supposed to do, and what the, pro- what the program was supposed to do had new features that just kept piling on over the course of time and i think that reacting to that feature creep was pre- probably really what drove a lot of these oddities that if they hadn't had to worry about that all the time they would have had better more standard documentation they were I mean, always working on several versions of the program at the same time and they had sort of side developments where people had branched off the code and were you know experimenting and doing stuff with it and and just try to get around some of these obstacles so you know i think probably given that they did the best that they really could. And I don't think, you know, having somebody with, uh, you know, the benefit of hindsight coming in and telling them to do it differently probably would have helped. And you can see that sort of, you can see that sort of if you look at the other computers that were in the spacecraft or in the rocket that I mentioned. In the lunar module, there was a computer, the abort guidance system. And that was for the sole purpose of if if they needed to bug out you know, they'd hit a button or whatever, and the abort guidance computer would take over from the AGC, and it would just blast the lunar module's ascent module away, you know, separated from the descent module, and just descent stage and descent stage, and just get back up into orbit somehow so that the command module could come and pick them up. And if you look at that code, because, see, that's that's very well-defined code. It's just got one purpose. And if you look at that code, it doesn't have any of the quirkiness. It's straightforward. Uh, it may, still doesn't have some of the things I think it ought to have, like a description of who wrote it. <laughs> but it's it's a code that's of a very different nature because it's very restricted. And similarly, to the extent that I understand it, if you look at the code for the computer that went in the rocket, that computer was called the LVDC. And actually, there's a story I'd like to tell about that if we have uh, time to do it. Yeah. Sure. Well, you know, as I... Been telling you that this collecting the software is a, it's a big deal, and it's but it's very it's because the whole project is data driven. If you don't have the software or whatever you're working with, you can't do anything. You just all you can do is refine, you know, the existing elements of what you've done, and so you wait around and wait around trying to get software. Uh, in the case of the abort guidance system. I never looked for it. I never heard of the abort guidance system. Somebody just said, hey, do you want stuff for the abort guidance system? And just sent it to me. And sent me two program versions and the documentation that described how the abort guidance system worked. All the information I needed, all the stuff that was so hard to deal with with the AGC. It just appeared out of nowhere. So I took care of it. The LVDC is, the the, the computer in the rocket is much harder. Much harder to deal with. Because it was manufactured and designed and manufactured by... uh, IBM Federal Systems Division. It's almost the same computer that was the guidance computer in the Gemini capsules. It has the same instruction set. It has almost the same memory map. It's almost the same computer. So the idea arose that, well, we ought to get some, just we got the software and, and simulation for the AGC and the abort guidance. System. We ought to get it for the LVDC too. And I was never able to find anybody. I never able to find any LVDC developers. Never able to find any code. Uh, at one point, A few years ago, somebody told, somebody got to us. They said they had seen this LVDC code in the U.S. Rocket and Space Center. Or is it Space and Rocket Center? It's a museum in in Huntsville, Alabama. And they they tend to get uh, materials that came from Marshall Space Center. And so they have an archives. So in addition to the museum, they have an archives. So somebody said, well, we had seen the LVDC code in the archives. So I called him up. And I the archives, and I said, "Well, do you have this?" "Yeah, we got it." I said, "Well, you know, can I get it?" They said, "Well, you know, you can make we can we can make copies of anything in the archives except that we're not allowed to do that because we have contractual obligation with IBM. We're not allowed to do that." And I said, "Oh, great." I said, "But you know, you can come over if you like, and you can make notes. You can write write some notes by hand." I said, "Yeah, that's great. I don't think I'll do that," and. (laughs) And, uh, and years passed in which we started there a, lot of, a lot of discussion on my mailing list about we want this LVDC code. stuff. So, so finally I said, you know what I'm going to do? I've got three weeks of vacation built up. I'm going to go over there to Huntsville and I'm going to sit down. I'm going to copy out the whole thing, the whole program by hand. Oh, wow. So I called him. I said, now you got this, right? Yeah, we got it. And, and it's okay with you if I come over there with a big, bunch of paper and I copy it all by hand. Yeah, that's fine. Come on over and do that. That's allowed by our agreement. So I went over to Huntsville and I went to the archive. And I said, well, where's, uh, okay, show me the code. So he took it over to the shelf. Well, there's the IBM shelf. I went through every document. There's no code there. Well, they didn't have the code. They were just confused, which which is a problem with archivists because archivists are great. You know, they understand all about archiving, but they don't understand anything about about the space program. So that was a disappointment. But sort of uh, contemporaneously with that, I had been contacted by uh, an anonymous contact who said, well, you know, he thought maybe he had some uh, snippets of LVDC code laying around. He'd let me see them if I wanted to, but I couldn't like post them online or show them to anybody else or anything like that. So I said, you know, I think I'll decline that offer too because what good does that do me? But then years passed. And then finally, a couple of weeks ago, I started by accident, started getting into contact with LVDC developers. And I guess because of the 50th anniversary, maybe they were looking around and thinking we ought to talk to people or something. I don't know. So got into contact with a few of them and I thought, you know what? I had to go back to this anonymous source and, and sort of crawl on my belly and say, mm-hmm. okay, give me the snippets of code that you have and uh, you know, I'll agree to whatever you want. Now, by this point, my source didn't actually remember saying that I couldn't do anything with this code so i got sent i got sent uh scan not scans digital photographs like snapshots from a phone of uh i think seven or eight pages and it wasn't just snippets of code you could see in the photographs it was an entire program listing so i said okay well you know i want this entire program listing well no you can't do that it's sensitive i'm afraid it may be classified etc etc so i said okay well you sent me a few of these pages what if it's okay if i post them online? Because they were just things like trigonometric functions and stuff. Yeah, okay, go ahead. Post them online, I don't care. So I posted a few of these pages, but there were some things, a little missing from it. So I went back to my source and you know, can I have such and such a page, such and such a page, such and such a page. And, okay, yeah, so here's them too. So I went through a few rounds of this, and finally I had like 15 or 20 pages of this of this listing. And I started to think, well, you know, if I keep doing this, pretty soon my source is going to become tired of doing this. And maybe we'll say, well, you know, you can just scan the whole thing if you want. And in fact, the very next day, as my source said, this is starting to get to be a lot of work. <laughs> so I said, okay, you just say the word, I'll get in the car, I'll drive to wherever the heck you are, and I will scan it all myself. You don't have to do any work at all. And I'll abide by whatever restrictions you say about posting it online. And I meet got guy back and said, no, I don't want to do that. But if you come here and give me $100, bucks, i will just give you this program listing and you do whatever the heck you want with it. And it turned out to be a place that was three hours away from me. Oh, wow. And so I said, I'm going to come there tomorrow. This was last Sunday, a week ago today. Wow. So <laughs> I almost killed myself getting there because I couldn't sleep that night. I only got a couple hours of sleep. So I almost dozed off several times in the car. But I went there. Handed over my money. Got this program listing. And I have it now. It's mine. I belong. You know, I own it. And so this program that I've been trying to get for years and years and you never had any luck and just, and I had all sorts of people tell me, IPM managers tell me, this code doesn't even exist. You know, it's impossible for somebody to have this code. And now here I have it. Uh, But I have a problem with it. And maybe your listeners might be able to help me with this problem. The thing is not classified. It's not stamped as classified all these kinds of materials, this kind of software that's developed for the government uh, as part of a contract, it's in the public domain. So there's no copyright issues with it. If there's patents, they would have expired decades ago. But there's ITAR. ITAR says, well, you know, if you got a launch vehicle and it's capable of delivering such and such a payload, such and such a distance, uh, you know, you can't give it to uh, like non-U.S. people. And somebody's pointed out that, well, maybe this software is restricted by ITAR. Maybe you can't post it online. Maybe you can't uh, have the transcribed source code and, and, and let anyone see it if they're not a U.S. citizen. And, you know, my reading of ITAR, that isn't really true as far as the software is concerned. You know, quite apart from the sort of nonsensical nature of it, since nobody has a Saturn, they're going to be firing at anybody. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, you don't know any answers. So, you know, if there's anybody in your, you know, amongst your listeners who has any insight... Uh, right now, I'm just treating it as... I'm treating it as being restricted. I'm, You know, I'm not giving it to anybody. I just me, it's just all secret, it's private right now, just the same way as it was a week ago, except in, now it's in my hands and it's secret and private, instead of being in some anonymous source's hands and being secret and private. But it's a frustration, because, you know, my project is an educational project. They want, you know, want to show you how these things were done a long time ago, and it's important, it's important project for, you know, not just the U.S. and humanity, and it's, uh, I mean, I understand the need to keep munitions technology secret, but this is hardly munitions technology, even though it sort of narrowly meets the criteria.
2: Same same issue with lawyers as
3: archivists. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you're right.
2: Well, that's that's really cool. Um, and I'm surprised that we got this far in the interview before we mentioned ITAR. As soon as you said LVDC, I was like, oh, oh, great, here it comes.
3: <laughs> well, you 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 predicted well.
2: <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, um, I'll go ahead and um, I'll put a a tweet out on twitter and and maybe a post on reddit and see if we can get somebody who understands itar but everybody that i've talked to so far has shook their head and gone yeah it's uh it's a quagmire that i don't understand either all right well ron thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us i feel like um this is such a deep well, like I feel like we could have sat here and talked for hours and hours and hours. But um, me personally, I'm running out of time here. So we have two traditional final questions. Um, the first is where would you like to be found on the internet?
3: Well, you know, I think if you go in the program notes, you'll see that uh, the main website is, at uh, this is uh, ibiblio.org slash Apollo, but you'll also find uh, links to uh, a JavaScript port of the virtual agency software. So that's a little more accessible because you can use it without installing anything, and you'll also find our GitHub link, which is where all of the uh, all of the software is is stored. If you want that, and there's also a link to our archive.org site, which is where all of the highest resolutions of our our scans are. So you know, if by chance, you want to see every little nitty little nitty gritty detail of the the paper of particular agency listing that's where to go
1: and they're they're really
2: pretty those scans
1: so ron if you could bring one thing into space with you what would it be <laughs> and you don't wow. really need to worry about <laughs> life support and things like that that's usually the first <laughs> the first instinct is you're, you're in a safe you're up in space, you're safe. What did you bring? They let you get one
3: personal item or whatever. You know, I've heard the space travel can be very boring, so I think I need a
0: good book. I've never heard that space travel can be boring, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I right, read so- too much science fiction as a youth, I'm afraid. Oh yeah.
3: <laughs> so so what book do you reach for first? My favorite book is Robert Heinlein's Methuselah's Children.
0: Heinlein. I don't think great. I've ever read that one actually.
3: It's great. Well it's very short, it has that great virtue.
1: <laughs> oh. Then that's that's right up my alley. <laughs>
2: well, thank you so much for, for your time. This truly this was a, a great conversation. I wish I wish I had more time to sit here and, and listen to listen to your stories.
3: Well thanks, it's been a pleasure.
0: upcoming spaceflight events. We have three of them. So first up
1: on July 24th we have a Falcon 9 Block 5 which will be taking SpaceX's uh, crew resupply mission uh, CRS-18 to the station. And so this will take place an instantaneous launch window at 2224 UTC flying out of uh, space launch launching out of Space Launch Complex 40 in Cape Canaveral. And yeah, once again, July 24th. Keep an eye out.
0: And then next up on the 24th, the same day, we have an uh, arian 5, and that's launching Intelsat SAT-39 and IDRIS-C. That's the European data relay system. So that's like our TDRS, except that they call it IDRIS. And what's cool about it is that it will contain a laser communication terminal. We And we've talked about this before. It's something really cool that Europe's doing. You know, they're putting various spacecraft in orbit and they're testing this... Uh, new type of laser communication system, which is, yeah, just really cool. So <laughs> that has a launch window of 1930 through 2147 UTC, so about two hours. And that's launching from ELA-3 in Kourou in French Guiana. So check that one out.
1: And finally, on July 27th, we will have the fourth flight of Momo. And so this is a uh, Japanese rocket that will carry a uh, research device developed by Kochi University of Technology, and will release a paper plane in space as part of an experiment proposed by uh, the castom Company. So, I only know what I read there.
0: (laughs) Okay, yeah, a paper plane in space.
1: (laughs) And this uh, will be launched on July 27th at 0205 UTC with a window from 0205 to 0330 uh, from Taikicho in uh, Hokkaido, northern Japan. So, those are your upcoming spaceflight events.
0: So that means it's time to deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music.
1: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly.
0: If you want to support the show too, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
1: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and please.
0: You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We'll see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody.